Hey, everybody. My name is Sam Brace, and I am the Director of Customer Education here at Cloudinary. And this is Dev James. This is where we talk with developers who are doing innovative, inspiring, or at least interesting things. And in many cases, since I do work for Cloudinary, as well as my co-host, who I'll introduce shortly, works at Cloudinary, typically the developers we're talking to in these episodes are using Cloudinary as well. But with that said, the types of projects can wide greatly in all of the different things that they are doing. So we want to be able to bring these to you in this format. So as I mentioned, I do have a co-host for this program, and that, of course, is Becky Peltz. Becky is our Curriculum Program Manager for Developer Education here at Cloudinary. And I love having her as the co-host in all these episodes. She brings a wealth of experience and knowledge for all of these conversations. So Becky, I am so happy to have you here again for this one. Hey, I'm glad to be here. And I think this is particularly exciting day since we're live streaming. We have done this in a more non-streaming fashion in the past, and this is exciting. And we have a fantastic guest with a lot of good knowledge here to pass on. So, Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's an exciting time to talk to somebody like Brad, who we're going to be getting to lot, know a lot more about in this episode. Because Brad has been doing lots of really interesting things, helping out developers with his own blog, contributing to podcasts, but also has a day job working at Atlassian as well. But one of the things that we're going to be talking about with Brad really is to better understand a couple of big, big topics which are tied to his project. It's going to be able to understand details about Markdown. It's able to understand details about... Also something called abstract syntax trees, which you're going to start to understand a little bit better. You may have seen these mentioned in certain types of articles, about, also known as ASTs. But these are two big things that have been coming up in lots of conversations when it comes to web development, software development, and sometimes tied to images and videos, which is why we're getting involved in the conversation. But it's something that I'm excited to talk to Brad about today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to him explaining how he put together Rehype with for cloudinary images, that he solves an important problem there. And um, I think he is going to be able to explain a lot to us about how to go about working with ASTs to solve this type of problem. Absolutely. Now, before we do get to Brad, and I do just want to point out to all everybody that is watching this overall episode that if you are so inclined, you want to see previous DevJams episodes, understand the things that Becky, myself, and other Cloudinary team members have done around this DevJams initiative, you can always go to cloudinary.com slash podcasts. And you can see here that there are many different links to the podcast programs that we have, including our latest episode, which focused on the way that Daniel over at Legitimate was able to build a Web3 marketplace with Cloudinary and talks about the ways that Cloudinary works from a Web 2 to Web 3 standpoint. So it's a fascinating episode. But it is to say that after you get to hear from myself and Brad and Becky, if there's more that you want to be able to be a part of, know that you can always go to cloudinary.com slash podcasts. And as you can also see at the very bottom, all the links of where you may be consuming podcasts already. That could include Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and even our own Cloudinary Academy. So... Lots and lots of great information there, just in case you are so inclined after all of this. So, Becky, any final thoughts before we bring Brad on? No, I think um, we're, we're going to get into a lot of interesting conversation, and he has done a lot of different types of uh, work with the this area. And so hopefully we can cover all of that and, and be 
enlightened here. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, let's get to it. So Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. This is awesome. So Brad, we talked a little bit about you. We said some things. What do you agree with? What do you want to share with about yourself at this point? Yeah, you guys are right. I, I do kind of have my hands in a lot of different uh, buckets here. I have a lot of side projects. Um, and that's something that I really, really like to do is work on coding outside of my normal day job. It gives me just like a lot more perspective on the wider industry and allows me to solve problems and learn new technologies on my own. And I think it's definitely something that I think as someone that's trying to grow in their career is great advice for them just in general. Like when I'm trying to learn about the education space, since that's what I do for my day job, if I just focused on what I was doing for Cloudinary, I'd probably feel very insular with all the things that are taking place, but trying to keep your hand on the pulse of what's new, what's cutting edge. If it, there are certain things that your day job allows for, but there are certain things that it definitely doesn't. So to keep expanding your scope, um, it's needed. So I think it's great that you're doing what you're doing for the development community by kind of putting your hands in lots of different pots and touching it and feeling it and understanding it, because it is something that I think helps us to grow within our various careers. Yeah. And we know from talking to you previously that you actually graduated with a degree in electrical engineering. So you, that's, a, that's a tough one. And, um, but you got into coding and can you tell us a little more about what you like about coding? Yeah, uh, you're right. Electrical engineering was actually very, very difficult, but, uh, throughout my curriculum, I specialized in, uh, like computer systems. So I actually learned how to like build computers from scratch, like how to build logic gates to make memory and then make, you know, adders and dividers and things like that. But through the course of that curriculum, I had like two programming classes. They were both in Java. And there was just something so satisfying about programming where you're like doing this kind of creative thing, writing code, because you can organize it in ways that work work with how you think and structure your code that's personal to you. Uh, and then it's also like really great because you get immediate feedback. You make a change, you run your program, you see the LED turn on. It was all hardware stuff at the time. So that immediate feedback, I loved a lot. And that's where coding really like struck me. And um, I wound up just kind of like kept going down that path in my career. Yeah, I mean, I've always kind of teased with people that are learning coding that if you're in a search for truth, you're definitely going to find it in a computer because if you write it right away. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, coding is better at telling you what's going wrong than hardware because stuff just, yeah. if it's hardware, it just doesn't work. If it's coding, it you got an error message or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's true. Well, it's great that you got into it and, and now you've kind of dived into some of the hottest stuff going on as you as you move into like static site generators and um, and your blog is written in the static site generator, which we'll get into more. Um, so how did how did you make that? that transition into this area? Like, I mean, there's many areas of computing. We, we hear about web three and, and lots of many different things. So what attracted you to this? Yeah, I, uh, I was working at Dell writing like very low level code. I was writing uh, C code, making firmware for their servers. And it basically just like how you power on, power off, update, change settings in their servers. Um, and it was just it was tough. It was in the weeds. You couldn't talk to anybody about what you were doing. You certainly couldn't show them. Uh, you can't just bring them into some big hardware lab and be like, see, I, I, I did that. 
Um, <laughs> so I, I just like found found interest in doing things that I could share. And web development was kind of really kicking off at that time. Um, there was like a transition into Angular around that time. And uh, I was just learning how to like build things and share it, whether it's with friends and family or uh, other coworkers trying to find ways to apply it at work. Um, and then I made a really big jump. I left Dell and I went to Adobe. And that was like where all the doors opened for me. It, you know, they are a, a web company. I was working on web products and I got to just play with all the latest and greatest stuff because I joined a brand new organization and it was like a field day for me. I loved every second. <laughs> yeah, I, I think of it like a candy store at Cladinary sometimes. There's just so many things going on that to, to kind of play, play around with. So Brad, when, now that we've kind of explained some of the details about how you got to where you are in web development, I'd love to know a little bit about this project that we're talking about with you today. Explain to me some of the details about it. And of course, if there's certain terms that I don't know, I, I might ask the questions about that. But tell me a little bit about the project. Um, yeah, maybe I'll start with like why it came about, because I yeah. feel like just spouting off the name of the project might not make a lot of sense if we don't have context on why I needed it. Um, as y'all mentioned, I wrote uh, my own website. Um, and I did that as a learning experience early on when I was, you know, starting in web development. And this website's gone through many iterations over the years. Um, but one thing that's kind of stayed true is that I always author my content in Markdown. I have a blog on the website and I, I write content in Markdown because I think it's important to own your own content. Instead of putting it on a CMS, you, you uh, check it into your GitHub repo or something like that. Um, and so... It's definitely a challenge getting this markdown that you write, which is kind of like a, a markup language, but it's very readable, kind of intended for articles or text. Um, and it's a challenge to get that markdown presented on your website in exactly the way that you want, whether it to get it to look a certain way, render a certain way, or even um, optimize the things that are included in that markdown. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like where this project was birthed. I I was using images on my website in my blog and I needed them to not cause layout shift when you render a page. Um, and I can kind of show more detail, but initially when, when you convert Markdown to HTML, images have no attributes on them. So it's a raw image tag with a source on it. And so that's where the customization really comes in. Yeah, I break it down a little bit for me, Brad, because like... I, I've used Markdown in different capacities for a good portion of like Cloudinary's time. All of the blog posts were written in Markdown. So it was something that if you wanted to author a blog post, it helped to provide it in Markdown. So that way it was just an easy copy and paste for the publication team. But I know that you said about converting Markdown to HTML. What, talk to me about why authoring it makes sense from the Markdown perspective, maybe particularly for a developer audience. Yeah, for sure. So at the end of the day, you're going to want to present this content on a website. Websites are built with HTML, but you don't want to write a blog post in HTML. Think about it like P tags and A tags and like manually doing all that stuff. No, you'd rather write it in something that's much more friendly, much more geared towards prose or text content. So Markdown kind of fills that gap. It's a specification that is very easy to read, like it's very human readable. 
uh, and you could write a blog post in it, but it also has support for some HTML basics like tables, links, images, headings. And so just by writing a couple hashtags, uh, you can get a heading out of it once that markdown is then converted to HTML. So it's the perfect tool for kind of writing on the web. You may have seen it on you know, GitHub and their readmes or a lot of CMSs support markdown. It's becoming a lot more popular today because it's uh, just a couple little syntax things and you're off to the races. I, I think also um, you can stay away from a CMS in a way. You can, markdown can be your CMS. So like if you don't want to invest the time and possibly money in getting a CMS or even a database to put all of your thoughts and data in, you can just put it in markdown. And then, as you said, you can check it into GitHub or wherever you're storing your stuff. It's yours. You own it. There's no need to create any kind of integration, except for the type that you're going to talk about in a little bit. But in general, it's 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 easy to read for anybody if, you know, GitHub actually shows Markdown rendered as HTML for you. So, yeah, it's a it's a great. In fact, I've heard people say, why do we even have HTML? Why don't we just go to Markdown? And just save a lot of time. But um yeah. And it comes with a fringe benefit uh, when used in like a blog post kind of way. On my website, I have a uh, like edit this post uh, if somebody wants to make a correction or something. And it essentially just opens a pull request uh, with their edits. So it's like really cool. It can be more collaborative that way. That is, that's a really great idea. I, I, I'm blown away just by that alone. <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah. I, yeah, note taken. That's something that I might want to do for other things that we do. That's really, really nugget right there. But one thing I, I don't fully get about what you were saying is when you're talking about rendering issues when, when it was attached to Markdown or essentially display issues with the Markdown. Talk to me about how that can come into play with Markdown files. Yeah, so um, out of the box, Markdown doesn't do anything. It's just a specification. It's just a, it's just a file type. It's a .md file. So in order to, to turn it into something you can use, like HTML, you've got to use some different libraries. And there are some really, really uh, high-level ones out there. One comes to mind called Marked. And Marked will just do one basic transform on a Markdown file to turn it into HTML. Markdown straight to HTML. But you can really peel back the layers of that onion and do a lot of different things with it. So Marked may be the uh, easiest and highest level package, but you can actually get into parsing Markdown, transforming Markdown, and even modifying the output of Markdown um, based on uh, this, this whole ecosystem called Unified, where it's a collection of packages to uh, turn these different file types into abstract syntax trees, make modifications to them, convert them between different file types, and then ultimately spit it out as HTML or whatever you choose. And I think we've been focusing on kind of the text aspect of Markdown, but we know too that we can put images in there, we can put um, lots of other types of media in there. So um, maybe we could move into looking at, because I, you've mentioned that the first step is to move it into one of these trees, we could take a look at that because I think you have a visual uh, that we could share. Yeah, absolutely. Let's add, yeah, uh, sure. you know, put your screen up and let's take a look at what you got going on. Yeah, I, and when I saw this, I really thought about 
how this is so much like what a web developer working in the DOM is used to, where you, you're used to a DOM tree and you're going to be able to go in, traverse the tree, find the element you want to change and make that change. So, so I, like, I like thinking about it that way, but could you explain what's going on here? How this works? Yeah, so uh, this is called astexplorer.net. AST stands for Abstract Syntax Tree. And this is just a really cool way to visualize what an abstract syntax tree is. On the left, you have Markdown. If you've never seen it before, it's pretty easy to read, right? It's just like sentences, and you'll see little annotations here like, this is a link. Uh, so this link, the text that's rendered is Vercel serverless function, uh, but the identifier for the link is Vercel functions. So if you go down here at the bottom, uh, this is like the link that it actually links to. So it's still pretty readable as you're scanning through it, but this is technically kind of like a, a form of code. But um, in this particular situation, or I guess, let's see, to tell you more about like what this is. This, this is just like a, a sentence or two, kind of like a paragraph. And if you look on the right, this is the abstract syntax tree representation of Markdown. An abstract syntax tree, you can think about it like, like a JSON file, pretty much. Um, and it breaks every individual little piece of this Markdown file into its own node. Uh, so for instance, in Markdown, some of the basic node types you can have is a paragraph. And so you'll see what's really cool about this Explorer is as I highlight the different paragraphs, it shows you on the left-hand side uh, what it's referring to. So the first sentence of the post <clears throat> relates to this paragraph here. It's of type paragraph, and it has some children with uh, a text, a link, different things like that because later on in this paragraph, there's a link right there. So yeah, there's a, there's a chunk of text, then a link, then some more text. And this is the basics of breaking Markdown down into something that you can edit, modify, you know, traverse, search, all these operations that you could do on a, on a data structure to actually change what this Markdown can eventually be turned into. And so when you've gotten it over into this point where it is in a tree and we can see it as JSON, um, we're actually kind of in this intermediate state where you, you know, you're, you're not marked down anymore. You are more of a kind of, I don't know, just something that is m more universal or, you know, not tied to any final format. Yeah, exactly. So you can imagine if you were going to take a markdown file and eventually turn it into HTML, uh, what it does is it goes from markdown to an abstract syntax tree. And then there's another kind of library or function call you can make to take that abstract syntax tree and then write it out to HTML. And there's, there's uh, these kind of libraries for all sorts of file extensions. Uh, you can actually do this for code javascript or typescript and code can be broken down into abstract syntax trees um, that's actually how eslint works to walk through your code and look for problems it traverses these syntax trees and you know runs rules on each of the nodes in there and make sure your code's formatted or you know annotated properly yeah so truly the word is abstract it, it puts you into a situation where you, I could come, I could create my own uh, file format and then I could 
translate any of these other formats into my format by accessing it at, through the tree. Yep, exactly. And Becky, looking at this, I can see in Brad, I can also see as well, like on like, like lines 40 through a few others, like the lines through 45, you've got different type of calls to images, which of course are cloudinary hosted and delivered. So to your point earlier about this, Becky, a lot of times when people are talking about Markdown, they might be thinking about just being text-based, but this is indicating that there is media, there's assets that are associated with this outside of just general markup of text. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I, and you know, it, it provides a, Markdown provides a way to show images um, in its own format. Markdown also allows you to put HTML in it. it. It will generally render HTML, so you can do it using that. But it is really interesting to think about what your next step was in the in 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 getting into the cloudinary experience. So, how did you move from looking at your markdown like this and becoming familiar with the tree to the project that you used Cloudinary for? Yeah. So, basically, out of the box, um, Markdown has some basic transformations. For instance, you put in a single hashtag, and then like, uh, this is my heading. Uh, that's actually a heading node. So like Markdown syntax says that one hashtag is a H1. It corresponds to an HTML H1 tag. Uh, you know, two hashtags is a second level heading in H2. And Markdown has all sorts of these little, you know, shortcuts to kind of map what looks like plain text over to HTML. Uh, now, it does the same thing for images. Um, and I can make this a little bit simpler instead of instead of using these these references, which are maybe a little bit harder to understand. Markdown's base syntax looks something like this: uh, an exclamation point with some square brackets indicates that you are starting uh, an image link. Um, and so, what's in the square brackets is the alt text, and what's in the curly braces is the actual link to the image. So. Markdown takes that funny syntax and turns it into an HTML image tag with a source attribute of this URL and nothing else. And that's great, but if you've worked with images on the web anytime recently, you know that images have gotten like way more complex and um, making your websites optimized, uh, especially when it comes to images, which are one of the huge factors in optimizing a website. Uh, you need attributes on your images for a lot of different things. Think about lazy loading, aspect ratio, um, all sorts of different optimizations like source sets and things like that. So Markdown kind of drops the ball here, uh, but the ecosystem around Markdown has a lot of tools for helping with that, luckily. Yeah, and when so, I work at, at your image there, I only see like five properties exposed through Markdown. So and, and so you're saying that we need we really have many more properties, more attributes that we want to be able to supply. Exactly. Yeah. So this this image essentially turns into this funny image syntax essentially turns into uh, this right here. Image source equals this string. 
Okay. Right? But we want to be able to modify this markdown transformation, the default markdown transformation, and do more. And uh, there's an entire kind of ecosystem for um, turning files into ASTs, making modifications on those ASTs, and then spitting it back out as some other file type. Yes, and, and I think this is the exciting for, I had not heard of this before, so I'm, I look forward to hearing more here. Yeah, so, so my use case was essentially images were not being optimized very well on my website um, as I was kind of migrating away from the Next.js image component. I was left with just the raw markdown output, which was pretty suboptimal. So I went searching and I didn't find any libraries that did the kind of thing I was looking for. At the end of the day, what I wanted to do was add um, width and height attributes to my images so that they didn't cause layout shift. Um, and if you're, if you're not familiar, there's this thing called the core web vitals, which are Google's metrics of kind of seeing how well your website performs. And one of these core web vitals is called cumulative layout shifts. And it basically means as your website is loading, how much jumping around does your content do as different things are loading in? Because HTML, as you know, like can call out to the network and bring in additional resources as it's loading the DOM. Um, so in this case, I really wanted width and height on my images to prevent layout shift. And you know, getting a good core web vital score is very important because Google will actually rank you higher uh, in their search results in their SEO if you have a high core web vital score. There's a direct correlation there. And I want to ask you about this because like with layout shifting, because we focus on a few different things when we talk about it from the image side of things, like largest like content, content paint and making sure that you know, what is the largest piece of content on your site, making sure that's optimized, because that's typically going to be an image or video in a lot of cases. But the layout shift isn't something that we've really talked too much about in these episodes. Tell us more about why you think Google cares about this in terms of the core web vitals. Yeah, totally. Um, I can show you an example, right? It's, it's actually very jarring if you have a website with a lot of layout shift. Imagine you're loading something in and you start reading the blog post, but then images keep popping in uh, later because they're big and they're, you know, more expensive to load. And the paragraph you were trying to read all of a sudden just gets pushed all the way down off the screen. That'd be super frustrating. Uh, right. So having these width and height attributes lets the browser know the image is going to be this big or at least have this aspect ratio. Um, reserve that space and then continue rendering. So... This is a, a blog post that I have called Securing Webhooks. And I have an image right here where I'm showing the environment variable configuration screen in Netlify. Um, I installed this URL throttler extension so that I'm like making Cloudinary requests slow so that we can see the images pop in. And I'll go to my code and make sure I've got this. Yeah, turned off. So. Uh, if I load this page, you're going to watch as this image jumps in in a couple seconds, and it's going to push all the content down. Oh, uh, there we go. Yeah. Right? So imagine if you're a really so fast reader. Um, and that can be jarring, right? Especially if you have a lot of images. Or what if your header 
or your hero image was on top and and just push the whole page down. Dude, so, I just have to share that I work with, um, you know, making dashboards with images and they would just come in. This was about 10 years ago. These things would come in and push the other one away and the whole page would be red and then another one would come in. You know, because it's an asynchronous environment, you're, you yeah. have control over that. It's however the network brings it in. But controlling the size can make a huge difference. So Yeah, you, you can add like preloading to images, um, but you're going to kind of look at a blank white screen for a whole lot longer. There's a lot of different strategies on um, not only when you load your images, but, but how and what size you load them. So now with my plugin enabled, um, if you refresh the page, you'll actually see that that space is actually reserved and the image then just pops up into that space. That's a great demo. That really shows the importance of what you're talking about. Absolutely, it does. And it also, it frankly, I better now understand why Google would even care about this as being a core web vital, because to your point, if you're making reading and accessing content on the web hard by you know, constantly shifting things up and down, then that's not a good user experience. So it makes perfect sense right. what you're showing there. And I, it, it makes sense why they would rank it so highly in that case. And good on you to understand that because if you don't want to have your core web vitals impacted. And so understanding that it's going to make it for a better user experience for people that are reading your stuff. Yeah, and just to be clear, what you did different is you added the height and width attributes to the image. And that That's was right. enough for the browser to make a good decision about it. Yeah, so based on the height and width, the browser can then calculate the aspect ratio. Um, you know, the image might actually be larger than what's actually displayed, but with the height and width, it knows the size of that box. They're They're rendering this column here that has a max width of you know, whatever, 800 pixels or something. And it says, oh, if this is an aspect ratio three by two, uh, you can kind of multiply that by the size of your column or your container, and it'll know exactly how much vertical yeah. space to hold for the image. Yeah, it's like you've reserved a table at the restaurant and then you got that yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was just about to use an analogy myself. I, lo I love that that you did that. But, it, but it, I can also see this being really helpful because as we know, the web is responsive now, and this makes sure to your point about aspect ratio, you're keeping that same aspect ratio. This means if someone's looking at this on their iPhone in portrait mode, all the way to a beautiful desktop display, it's going to ensure that that image still had the same level of placeholder, regardless of what the pixel and width and height is going to be, because it's allowing for that set amount of space based on the viewport, right? Yeah. And it was just recently that, um, uh, width and height became important again. Uh, images can now, you know, calculate aspect ratio through width and height. Prior to that, you had to specify aspect ratio, which is even one of the newer image properties as well. So all of this stuff is just coming to the forefront once again, because browsers are getting smarter with what they can do with these images. So how did you pull this off? I saw, of course, you, you did the EST example, so you were adding width and height and details in there, but it, how do we? How did you start going and doing this more turnkey with what you're doing with your blog presence? Um, so, yeah, this this really was enabled by the unified ecosystem, which helps uh, transform things to and from ASTs, and then make modifications to those ASTs. I think that was the question you were asking. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. Like, like, so how did you end up doing that with the unified system? 
Um, so Unified is complex. Uh, it, you can find it at unifiedjs.com, but like it's, it's very complex. And this is something I feel like I want to make a course on in the future because there's just not enough information out there to figure all this stuff out. Um, but how I did it, let me open up the source code so I have a reference here. So one of the first things uh, that you can do in this unified ecosystem is you can write your own plugin. Um, and you can use this plugin at any point in the chain of transforms that you're applying to your markdown. So for instance, uh, you, first you have to parse that markdown into an AST. And then you can apply multiple transforms at the AST level. And then you can change that AST over into a different kind of AST, like an HTML. AST. And now this gives you HTML properties you can work with. Um, and so that's precisely where I started to inject the things that I cared about into the HTML. So you can either modify like the markdown content itself or swap it over to the HTML version and then start working with like HTML nodes and, and attributes and things like that. So yeah. in order to do that, right? I mean, you, we know with we, I could see in your, for example, line 11, rehype Cloudinary image size. So rehype is a tool that you've incorporated to help. Yeah. Let me pop over here. This is probably a better, uh, better high-level overview. So this is the function that actually transforms my markdown on my blog. And, and the very first thing you do is you call into Unified and it says, okay, start my Unified chain. What's the first thing you want to do? You want to use Remark, which is a... Uh, parser for markdown to turn that into an AST. And then you can see I'm like applying a bunch of um, transformations to that AST. I'm using GitHub flavored markdown. I'm unwrapping images, removing the paragraph tags around them. Um, I'm changing the way these inline links work a little bit. I'm doing very fancy embeds for Twitter and Twitch and YouTube. And these are all just modifications to that markdown AST. Uh, but then there's a very pivotal moment here where I call Remark Rehype. And that's a plugin that takes a Markdown AST and converts it into an HTML AST. And these functions are all chained after each other. So like you're, it's just returning essentially the, the AST each time. And so now you have a HTML AST. And this is where I wanted to actually change the image tag to add width and height. And so I injected my own plugin, uh, my own unified plugin to do exactly this. And so this is kind of how you hook into the whole process. Um, and uh, I'll show you what that looks like. So the name of the thing I made is called Rehype Cloudinary Image Size. It's a plugin specifically for HTML ASTs to um, reach out to Cloudinary, uh, grab, some information about the image, uh, and then add that into uh, image tags as width and height attributes. So you have to like actually uh, create this uh, this traversal of your AST. And in this case, we're we're you know walking around the AST looking for um, image nodes that are Cloudinary images. So you kind of stop at every anchor link or rather every image tag in your AST, 
check the source attribute and make sure that that has like res.cloudinary.com in it. That way you know it's a Cloudinary image and you know you can then go get more information about that image. Um, once you kind of have identified that, um, what I do is I run this little function called get image dimensions, which is an API call out to Cloudinary, and then add those dimensions onto your image properties as width and height. And you do that for every image you find in your AST. And then move on with the rest of the unified chain and eventually convert it to actual HTML. That is really good. Cool. Maybe I missed it. And, it, and hopefully you're like, oh, Sam, you need to pay better attention. But how is it getting those image properties? Like, I understand it's calling Cloudinary at this point, but like, what are the image properties it's grabbing? Is it grabbing the original width and height or is it grabbing an optimized version of it? What is it grabbing there? Yeah, so this is where this get image dimensions function I wrote comes into play. Uh, and this is just leveraging the power of the Cloudinary API because it's really good. Uh, I will say like I use the Cloudinary API for like automatically optimizing my images format and quality. So like it doesn't matter what I uploaded to Cloudinary, I can get a WebP on my website or Hi. I can uh, retrieve the image at, you know, 80% quality where you don't see, you know, terrible degradation or anything. But the same API can also get you like metadata about those images. Um, and so I essentially just look at the the source attribute and splice in this this API endpoint that Cloudinary has called FL underscore get info. And it returns uh, this really cool JSON object of all sorts of metadata about the image, including the, the width and the height. I love the fact that you're using this. And, 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 and once again, it, it emphasizes the power of JSON in another way, where it's like the fact that you can get all of this additional metadata, get all this additional detail from something that's being delivered by this. It, you can, so, it shows how you can use that information really well. Clarify a little too there, because it's, it's pretty cool what you did here. You took the original URL and you added to the path, you added mm -hmm. slash FLGET info, which is one of our transformations. And that allowed you to get back this JSON that you could then pull properties out of. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you, you need the reference to the image um, and then you need to splice in the, the path. And it's, it's, it's nested after like your account name in the, in the URL. So it, you, you kind of have to find that and then put it after that. Yeah, yeah. So you you had to kind of learn how our URLs are composed of domain, cloud name, you know, transfer. Exactly. Upload. Yeah. And once you master that, then you're able to figure out how to stick a little transformation into the path and, and do more with it. Yeah. Now, I will say one thing that that would be really convenient here is if, Maybe suggestion for Cloudinary. If y'all had an FL get info endpoint that after that you could put a full you know, like URL there. I'll share one little tidbit there that might get you there. We have what's called a list type of delivery. Like normal delivery is going to be like upload authenticated, you know, various types of access uh -huh. control. But if you have list and you have tagged your your assets, um you can, what'll happen if you call, if you call for the name tag, whatever you named your tag, like, you know, Brad, Brad is you tag your assets with Brad, Brad.json with the, the list type, 
you will get back a JSON, you know, you'll get back. It'll be like you're calling and getting, you're getting a massive amount of information about each of your assets that are tagged with that. And that's for all tagged assets, not just a, a single asset? It's, it, you have to have tagged with that Brad. So if you, if you tagged all your assets with Brad and you asked for Brad.json, you get them all. I, there may be a limit. Like if you have thousands, maybe there is a limit there. But in general, it's a way to get back a, a JSON, yeah. JSON data without having to use any kind of uh, API secret or API key because it's all public. You're basically yeah. just having back public information about your assets. You're making my gears turn because, uh, you know, this kind of happens um, uh, at runtime a little bit, like when these are generated. And I wonder if there's maybe like a way to kind of pre-compile this image data so that we don't have to make as many API calls. This this API call happens once per image, which is one of the things I really had to optimize. Um, I didn't want to traverse the tree, make one API call, wait on yeah. it find another node, make one API call, wait on it. What I did was traverse the tree, found every image, collected all those URLs, made all the calls at once. They all came back all together um, and then made the transforms. Yeah. Uh, but this is good because you could technically pre-compile everything, have a JSON file and just reference it. Like that's, that's Which, nice. Yeah, 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 that would work. I'm kind of curious about ASTs that, you know, with the DOM, you have the query selector that'll let you say, you know, go get me all the image elements on my page. Have they got anything like that? So that you can like just, instead of having to walk through the whole tree, you can just grab certain elements. Uh, that's, that's absolutely an awesome question. Uh, there are some helper functions um, that do stuff like this. So you'll see that I, I'm using packages called HAST, which stands for HTML AST, or HAST util is element, um, and which is just a check on is the is the particular node I'm on an image element or a paragraph element. Uh, there is, I believe, one called like HAST query selector or something like that, okay. where it can it can kind of more directly access these nodes. But typically, the way you do these trees is you you walk them. You do walk um, them. Yeah, and so. It gets really complex in there because you can't modify the tree that you're walking. Like if you add a node underneath the one that you're currently on, you could kind of make a, a recursive loop because you're adding a new node, continuing to traverse. It finds it, maybe makes a transformation. So um, a lot of what you have to do is kind of like save off your modifications for later and then apply them at the end or something like that. So that was something I shot myself in the foot with a couple times. Uh, doing this because I accidentally made infinite loops by modifying the tree that I was walking. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, walking through trees is, it, that's an advanced course in computer science. So yeah, it's not <laughs> yeah. everybody, but yeah. you've got a really good example of how to do it here. So it could be yeah, it was anybody. one of those things where you learn just enough to make it work and then say, okay, I, I get it. <laughs> Brad, this might be a silly question, but I, I, I got to ask you because I'm not sure if I fully understand it. But so obviously I can see here that everything that you have, like the various files are showing markdown.ts. TS stands for TypeScript. Is all of this stuff possible only because you're using TypeScript or is it something where the techniques you could be shown, could, could they be done in other ways? Yeah, 100%. Um, all of these libraries are JavaScript libraries. I choose to use TypeScript because I love the auto-completion. I love how it kind of keeps me in my lane, gives me hints on 
what these APIs do. Um, and I just, I feel like it, it, it's just kind of becoming the gold standard for web development now. Um, but at the end of the day, JavaScript is just a superset of, or sorry, TypeScript is a superset of JavaScript. So all of this is available in JavaScript. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, it, it I, I, everything I'm seeing here is just JavaScript in general, but I just want to make sure that was clear because it's where you, I, I can see people that are maybe new to some of these concepts being like, oh, well, this JavaScript is not TypeScript, but JavaScript is TypeScript. And I want to make sure that it was clear. Yeah, for sure. So now that we've kind of seen these different processes that are taking place, one thing that I also wanted to ask you about, because I've seen it in a few of the examples you've shown, was this F auto and Q auto that's coming from Cloudinary. Of course, Cloudinary, we're calling this auto format, auto quality. And it's dealing with making sure that images are compressed to a certain value, making sure that it's delivered in the most optimal format based on the browser. Talk to me about more about why you decided to use this and how maybe you're applying it to your images. Yeah, so going down this path of image optimization, um, I, I'm, I'm using Next.js but I'm kind of trying to migrate off of it, but it's like a process because you have to kind of kind of pull yourself out of their APIs one at a time. So the first one that I kind of got away from was the next image component in React, which did a lot of this stuff for you. Um, but I wanted to just write code that kind of works everywhere and be able to take it with me instead of being so bought into a specific framework. So when I lost image optimization, I was like, oh man, it's gonna hurt my web vitals. Maybe my SEO will be worse. So Cloudinary was like one of the first things I looked at because one, the free tier is uh, ridiculously good. And two, they offer all of these transformations that are so easy to apply with the URL of your uh, image. And I was constantly writing in Markdown, so I just needed a, a way to access these images via a URL. I, I, was, I didn't want to store them in my GitHub repo. It was getting too big for that. So I offloaded to Cloudinary. And one of the things that Cloudinary does offer is image optimization with this, this particular URL path. Uh, you can add in these, these, this comma-separated list of keywords that affect how your image is brought back to you. And you could do like a lot of really cool things here, but the basics, in my opinion, are um, your format, like essentially what, what file type this is. Is it a JPEG? Is it a ping? Is it an SVG? Is it a WebP? Uh, if you use F underscore auto, Cloudinary will figure out the, the, the best format for the browser or device that you're on and deliver that. So I could have uploaded a JPEG. Cloudinary will serve a WebP if that works best for your browser. And then the second thing that I have here is Q auto, which affects the quality of the image. If you're serving it at, you know, 100% quality, you could probably get away with a little bit less, to be honest, and nobody would know the difference. Um, and I think like, just to test this out, what if I did, I think it's like Q10. That looks yeah, much worse. I don't know if you can tell, I don't know if you could tell through the thing, but auto looks just as good as Q100 at the end of the day, but it's a much smaller file size. Like you, you're not going to be able to tell the difference between hundred percent quality and Q underscore auto. And it's going to save you, you know, bytes or kilobytes over the wire, meaning your website's faster higher SEO, better core web vitals, all that stuff. 
I've got to congratulate you on you just did a great job of explaining at 10Q Auto. I mean, it, I think we should well, like encapsulate yeah. this and share and treat this. <laughs> Made it very easy to to understand. When oh, and I just verified it, and I pulled it up on my screen as well, and I checked your profile page on your blog. And yep, you're absolutely right. It take the JPEG, it converted to WebP because I was using Chrome for my browser, and so it 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 makes perfect sense what you're describing here. Um, and one, once again, kudos for you to understand optimization to that level. But one thing that I would, I'm curious about is how are you applying FAUTO and QAUTO to your images? Are you baking that in through some form of automation? Is it a manual ad? How, how is this taking place? This is something that I need to improve. I, I finished this image transition not too long ago. And, um, Right now, what I'm doing is literally just using the Cloudinary URLs in my Markdown sources with F-Auto, Q-Auto in them. Um, going back to like my actual blog source code, you'll see down here, this Cloudinary image has that in there. And I, that's actually something I was looking for is I don't really want to write another um, like a remark or yeah, this would be a remark plugin to add these in there. I feel like there's got to be some setting in Cloudinary that says, just serve all my images like this by default all the time. Uh, so what, what do you say? Do you all have that kind of feature? Uh, we, I, I think that feature, yes, in, in a sense, we have a, we have a feature. Um, but when for developers, I think what we like to do is we have a SDK for JavaScript that allows you to add that kind of on the fly or like if, especially if you're mm. in next you can have it pre-processed you know through the s there's uh, or, or if you're using remix something if you're using an fdr ssr you can have that done ahead of time but yeah so the sdk i think is the the easiest way to do that automatically a uk you know you could use a javascript sdk there's react there's react for the if you're doing react um you could also have a microservice with Node that just did that, you know, so you could just kind of have that be uh, your optimizer as your, and generally I would say you would be doing that during your building of your pages rather than real right. time. Yeah. Right. Um, and I will throw out here um, that one of our DevRel, uh, Colby Fayok, has written a plugin for the Netlify. So if you're deploying to Netlify, he uses what's called the fetch type, which is kind of letting, uh, it kind of uses Cloudinary to proxy your image. So say your image could be sitting in your own assets folder on your website. He'll go out, his code yes. will go out and grab it and F-Auto, Q-Auto it and get it into our, our um, into your cloud or, or product environment. Um, but it's, it will leave the source of truth as your list of assets. So if you change that, it could get right. updated cache. But yeah, um, there are there are a couple of ways that I think developers are doing this in that way. In and on. But I could bet you could come up with an automated way that would be even cooler. So I don't want to tell you. Yeah, that's the only way. I'm telling you, it's <laughs> Markdown, while it's very great, um, it's you're not like in a runtime environment where you just have access to these URLs and can and transform them and stuff on the fly. This is a very pre-compile type thing where you're working with raw source 
uh, trying to like transform that. Yeah, I got to go back to the drawing board on some of this stuff, see if I can make it better for sure. Yeah, some of those functions that you see in, in the next framework where they are grabbing your mark down and doing some processing during the build cycle, those are, those, those are great places to, to do that. So looking at this again, and we kind of also alluded to some of this because we've talked about what are next steps for this type of project or what's next steps for your blog presence. But what else are you cooking up? Whatever things are you doing when it comes to your blog, the delivery of maybe images, maybe not. Um, but what, what, what's, on, what's on the roadmap for Brad? Yeah, so I'm, like I mentioned, I kind of had this effort to move my blog off of, I'll show you what it looks like. Uh, migrating my blog from Next.js over to Remix and in the process, trying to just take a lot of code that was very Next.js specific, like their image component, um, and pull that out into kind of framework agnostic packages or uh, code that lives in my repository because this website switches frameworks once or twice a year. Uh, and I just want that process to be easy essentially everywhere I go. So if I have one function that transforms my markdown and grabs my cloudinary images and stuff, then I can drop that in any framework anywhere and put it in the compile step and, and it'll be just fine. Um, so it just helps me explore new technologies and makes me feel like I'm not like buying into one uh, framework or one hosting provider or anything like that. Uh, so no, in this transition, sense. in this transition, I've had to do a lot of work. I had to get rid of the next image component. I'm moving all of my CSS over to Tailwind because that just works a lot better in the Remix model. And then at the end of the day, I actually have to make the migration over to Remix. So. It's a, a large effort, but it's something I like doing because I always view this website as uh, hopefully, you know, the best thing that I can produce showing like where my skills are at today because it's kind of like my landing page on the internet. That's a great idea to think of your blog that way as that you're continually having it reflect what you're interested in. The technology that you use to build it is the stuff that you're working on. Yep. Great way to do it. One question I have you that you just mentioned. So it, Tailwind, talk to me a little bit about that because I see this co constantly coming up, constantly coming up in developer blog posts, evangelists are talking about Tailwind in different places. We have not covered this topic at all when it comes to dev jams. Um, tell me just basically in your own words, what is Tailwind? Why does it matter? You mentioned it in the vein of CSS. Anything details like that could be really helpful. Yeah, so um, Tailwind is a collection of CSS utility classes. So what that means is there's a there's a uh, like a color blue class or a color red class or a color green class or a uh, margin left two class, um, and they've got like hundreds of classes. And you might think that that's overwhelming. And and when you first pick up Tailwind, it is. And all of these classes are just applied to your HTML elements. So if you want to style something with 10 different styles, you're putting like 10 different class names after that element. And the first thing that people say is Tailwind is ugly, but <laughs> you don't okay. understand the benefit. Uh, they think the authoring experience is ugly, but they, they haven't thought through of why this matters, why it's different than something like... Um, CSS modules or using even vanilla CSS or, you know, using some other uh, like bootstrap or something. So 
in those other solutions, um, the size of your CSS grows over time. Because CSS cascades, you're afraid to remove things, so you style something new, and you're like, well, I guess I just have to make a new class or, or selector and add styles there. And so what happens is your style sheet just kind of keeps growing, and it can grow infinitely. Like Even if you wrote your styles very, very well, your, your website gets larger, and you keep adding more CSS, and that will grow uh, indefinitely yeah. as you add more pages. Tailwind is cool because it has a set number of utility classes, and that never changes. And those utility classes essentially enable everything in CSS, so your CSS file stays the same size no matter how big your website gets. What's even cooler is that all the classes you don't use, they strip out. So your CSS file is exactly as big as you need it, with a maximum size guarantee. Um, and and what's even better is that that CSS file is generated and it's super cacheable. So like you've got one declaration file, it's cacheable all over your website. So anytime you go grab it, it's it's very, very fast. Yeah, I have to say too that it's CSS is hard. Anybody that's worked with it. Yeah. Um, the fact that the order of the elements in your CSS file has a big effect on what how they're going to get interpreted. It's a hard thing to teach people. Um, and I worked on a project once where a guy looked at our CSS and he said, oh, I think this would be better if I also which I did. You know, I was like, no, 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 that's not what it's all about. So, so yeah, it's a hard thing to understand CSS and, and how... So so if someone gives you CSS that's all nicely formatted and guaranteed, and like you said, small, cacheable, all that, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, and that's the performance benefit of it. I, I actually haven't talked about the the uh, the authoring benefits. They have a VS Code plugin with IntelliSense that's so good. It's like TypeScript <laughs> for CSS, and it like has inline previews of all the colors and and descriptions of every property. It's amazing so like it actually has a better experience than writing vanilla css that's cool yeah it's really cool and i'm glad you went into that detail because we actually got some comments in the from the people that are watching this asking about css with this particular project so i think this was very enlightening to be able to, to tie that into what we've been able to cover with all the things that we've talked about so far so thanks for that absolutely and so it does seem like if people are wanting to stay up to speed with what you're up to, um, main, going to your main website or your blog is the best place to do so. It, and I also know you're probably active on a few different social media areas. Is there any particular place where people get the latest and greatest that Brad's working on? Yeah, um, I'm all over the place. I do, I do a lot of stuff, um, but I'm very active on Twitter. That's how I like find out all about web development. I, you know, hang out with all my friends there and stuff like that. Um, so that's twitter.com slash Brad Garraby. Actually, if you're, if you're seeing my video, I've got at Brad Garraby. That's my handle everywhere. So I'm on Twitter. Uh, I have a YouTube channel where I make web development videos. I, I even talked about um, converting my website over to Next.js when that happened. Um, and you can find me on GitHub at Brad Garraby as well as Twitch. I stream um, coding every now and then over there on my Twitch channel. Yeah, as we can see from your amazing mic and camera setup, hopefully you're out of <laughs> So that makes yeah. perfect sense to me too. But this is amazing, Brad. And obviously, this is, in my opinion, this is probably just one step of a multi-part journey that is taking place with 
blog redevelopment, reconstruction, working with images in, in these different ways. So hopefully this isn't the last time we talk. So if you have anything else that you're working on, especially when it comes to the culinary side of things, um, reach out and we're happy to have you come back on at any time. That's awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. So let's say goodbye to Brad real quick. Thanks again, bud. And yeah. we're going to go ahead and quickly sum this up. So Becky, after talking to Brad, um, what do you feel your biggest takeaway was? I just love the descriptions of why these things are done, like like understanding the the web core vitals aspect of this. Like it's such a simple thing to be able to have those with height attributes, but they're not available in Markdown. And so to, to come up with a way to, to make them available makes a huge difference. And the demo on that was really good. Um, and just kind of getting the overall understanding of this AST and how powerful it is. And he's able to just spin this up in a JavaScript file, even TypeScript, but it's basically JavaScript. So really great to hear all that and, and just a really well-rounded look at where a web developer might be in this time and space, you know, working through problems that we all are encountering with browsers and, and such. Absolutely. And it's something that I've been hearing coming up a lot from, from many different people that work at Cloudinary is there's conversations taking place about ways that people can be working with images better with markdown files. And I think basically Brad just demystified that entire thing. So if someone's saying, how do I work with markdown and images in general, but also Cloudinary images, then we just showed you an amazing example of that. And I think that's something where being able to understand the process, as you, as you said, being able to understand the connection between this and abstract syntax trees, ASTs, it all is now coming to fruition. And hopefully we start seeing more people using the work that Brad did, developing you know, the plugin or the work that he did in his GitHub repo, um, applying that to their own projects um, for future uses. Yeah, and I, I love that he gave so many good plugs to Cloudinary because um, we didn't ask him to do that. Nope. But he really did uh, seem to be able to embrace what's going on there and just start working with it right away. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do want to emphasize that if people enjoyed this episode, once again, make sure to follow everything that Brad is doing. And then similarly, make sure that you are following everything that we are doing here with the DevJams program. Of course, when this episode is available on demand, you will be able to get access to that just by simply going to cloudinary.com slash podcasts. And also, as mentioned earlier, if you are interested in seeing any of the past episodes, they are all there, including in all the places that you are likely consuming podcast content, such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and even in our own training academy that we have for Cloudinary, also known as the Cloudinary Academy. So Make sure that if you're so interested in Dev Jams and what we're talking with, because we've profiled amazing developers, including people like Brad. So this is definitely not the first. This won't be the last. And we hope that you guys are enjoying this overall experience. So Becky, any final words before we let our audience go for the day? Oh, I'm just going to go out and try Remix now. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I, I've definitely been inspired to dive into a few things that Brad showed in this episode. So... As we as we say regularly, this inspires us at Cloudinary, just being able to see all the things that you guys are up to. So thank you again. And we hope to see you all at future episodes and future streams of 
Dev Jams. Take care, everybody. We'll see you soon.